4: Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman poyan The whole thing is very, Tate, very mysterious, dogs, but this is
0: what I know. ...authorities
4: say a menacing letter received yesterday by a Vallejo newspaper was not sent by the infamous Zodiac Killer, That's Gebhardt has details.
0: That Area 51, the secret Air Force Base in Nevada, actually exists.
4: In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. He's been called the Eastside Rapist. He's been called the Visalia Ransacker, the Original Night Stalker, and the Golden State Killer.
0: You have now entered into the House of Mystery, the best in true crime, conspiracy, and alternative history with Al Warren and Kevin Thompson. KCAA, the stations that leave no listener behind. Broadcasting on 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM. The trifecta of talk radio for Southern California.
1: You're back in the House of Mystery on KK&W 1150 AM Seattle and KCAA 106.5 FM Los Angeles. I'm your host, Al Warren, and Kev Thompson's there. Hey, Al. From the road. Yeah, he's on the road. The man on the street. He's, he's the man on the street. He is at the hurricane right now? No. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm going to get hate mail for that. Um, yeah, now, literally, literally on the streets. So. though. <laughs> yeah, literally on the streets. Okay. Now, today we are talking, uh, we're going into history today, and uh, we're going to be talking about the Knights Templar. And uh, joining us is uh, an author of, I believe, seven, maybe eight books on this subject. Um, we'll find out. So welcome, uh, David S. Brody.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: Um, So, wow, let's get into this. How did you um, get such an interest to write all these books and to get into the Knights Templar?
3: Yeah, so about a dozen years ago, uh, my daughter was in fourth or fifth grade at the time and came home and said to me, Dad, we heard a story in school today about uh, explorers who were here in America before Christopher Columbus. And I said, oh, do you mean the Vikings? And she said, no, Prince Henry Sinclair. And I said, well, who is that? And so uh, we live uh, outside of Boston in a town called Westford, and we have a legend in Westford that Prince Henry Sinclair, a Scottish nobleman, sometime in the late 1390s, uh, essentially followed the path of the Vikings over to Maritime Canada and continued down the coast into inland Massachusetts where he landed uh, and, and, and climbed a hill here in Westford, Massachusetts. And so we have a legend called the, the Westford Knight Legend. And, And that legend is that one of Sinclair's men died while he was here, and he carved an effigy into the rock ledge uh, to memorialize that night. And that effigy is still visible today. And the reason that's so interesting for our conversation today is it turns out the Sinclair family uh, have a long history with the Knights Templar, and many people believe the Templar treasure ended up in Scotland, in Roslyn, with the Sinclair family. The family later built Roslyn Chapel, made famous in the Da Vinci Code. So we have all this interesting history here in my hometown, uh, relating back to the Sinclairs and the Knights nice Templar and their possible treasure. So again, about twelve years ago, um, I sort of went down that rabbit hole researching this matter and then figured if there's you know, if it's true there should be other evidence. And for a dozen years I've been I've been kicking around in the dusty corners of history, uh in desperate need of a shower and a change of clothes it's been 12 years since I've been down that rabbit hole but in that time i found a lot of evidence indicating yes indeed there were explorers here yes they did have ties to the outlawed knights templar and uh... i've written like you said seven and and as of tomorrow or the next day eight books will be uh... have come out on on this subject so it's my passion my kids call me the rock nerds i'm out in the woods all the time looking for uh... you know rock carvings and whatnot but uh... Yeah, it's, it's what I love. It's what I do.
4: Uh,
1: well, that's good. It sounds. It sounds. It. It comes out. Um, now, sh- your daughter. She mustn't have been going to school in the states then.
3: No, she was. here oh. in Massachusetts, and she learned and about it. And again, that. Only, be- <laughs> only because it's a local legend. Only because of this oh, particular town. <laughs> you know, this is not. This is not stuff that's taught in most uh, elementary schools. But they had a storyteller come in that day, and and again, because we have a town marker, and and there's a, there's a, there's a tourist site here in the town, and so people know about it. And we're probably the only town in America that, that teaches this right now. But it happened to be that that's where we live. And and even though I'm a lawyer by trade, I, I you know I'm a fiction writer by by avocation. So I like to say that when I when I look at this stuff, you know, as a lawyer, normally I don't care about things like truth and facts. <laughs> <laughs> but, as a, but as a fiction, as a fi, and you guys are a conspiracy radio so if you, you can appreciate that. But as a fiction writer. Yeah. I, I, the facts matter. The truth matters because if I'm going to write this stuff and I'm going to expect readers to invest their time and money in my books, you know I've got to bring something to the table. I've got to bring hard evidence about this. I can't just sort of wave my magic wand and say, ah, oh, you know, people were here 100 years before Columbus. No, they want to see evidence, and so you know it, it's almost right. like selling selling the story to my to a jury. My readers are my jury. And, and I, and, and again, so I went out looking for evidence, and I figured if there, if these guys really were here in 1398, 1399, and they really did carve this ev- effigy on a rock ledge in Westford, there should be other evidence. You know, if there's not, it's probably, it's probably not a legitimate story. But if there is, and we can start piecing this together using different disciplines, not just geology and archaeology, but cartography and linguistics and DNA evidence and, you know all sorts of different disciplines. If we can 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 link this all together, we can mm-hmm. create a tapestry that tells a story, and that's really what's happened in the past dozen years or so.
4: Fake news. Well, <laughs> fake news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, now, David, you mentioned this effigy. Uh, what is it? What is the effigy and What sets it apart that that says Templar other than okay. anything else?
3: So there there's an effigy that we can see, t- I'm sorry, a carving that we can see today, and the carving today clearly depicts a medieval battle sword. Picture Mel Gibson in Braveheart, you know, it's the early 1300s, and cut your head off type of thing, a hand and a half, a claymore, that's clearly there. What may also be there, and this we have photographs going back to the 1930s and 40s showing this pretty clearly, would be the rest of the effigy, the knight himself, his helmet, his shoulders, his shield, it's the coat of arms on the shield that ties us back to the gun clan, which in turn ties us to the Sinclairs and it's the Sinclair association with the Templars which sort of puts this whole thing together. And again we we get into other artifacts later on. But as far as the story goes, Prince Henry Sinclair this is the thirteen nineties. His grandfather was one uh was a was a knight Templar, but going back even earlier to the early years of the uh, 12th century, the, fa- the nine founding members of the Knights Templar, one of them was married to a Sinclair woman. And so for about 200 years, we have this close association between the Templars and the Sinclair family. And then going forward, after the Templars were outlawed in 1307, and uh, many of them we think ended up in Scotland, uh, many historians believe the Templars reconstituted themselves as the Freemasons. And then we yes. see this long association between the Sinclair clan and Scottish Right Freemasonry, so close in fact that for a couple hundred years the Sinclair clan were hereditary grandmasters of Scottish Right Freemasonry. That goes all the way up I think into the seventeen hundreds. So we have about a five hundred year, six hundred year span where we have this close association between this one family and the Templars going backwards and the Freemasons going forwards. Wow.
1: Now now can now, you Oh are you gonna you got something?
4: Oh, yeah, just a follow-up there, Al, I apologize. Um, Now, what is your take on the Freemasons' connection with the Templars? Do you think it's a legitimate? Do you think that we absorb them to protect them, or do you think that it's two individual things?
3: I think definitely the former. I think it's definitely uh, um, the Templars were outlawed, and they reconstituted themselves as the Freemasons. You know, we like to talk about how in the 1960s, federal statutes were uh, anti-racketeering statutes were passed to, to outlaw the mafia. Well, the mafia didn't go away. They went underground. They reconstituted themselves. They're still around 50 years later. Same thing with the Templars. The King of France and the Pope outlawed the Templars, but they didn't go away. They reconstituted themselves. They renamed themselves. They relocated themselves. But there was it was too important and powerful An organization just to disappear because of some edict that was signed by a king in France. So uh, I think it's very clear if you look at the symbology and allegory of Freemasonry that much of it has its roots in the Knights Templar. Um, And and you can just walk into a uh, Masonic lodge and and, and just listen and watch for a while. I'm not a Freemason myself, but I spend a decent amount of time lecturing in these lodges, and you can't Mm -hmm. help but notice similarities between the two organizations.
1: Now, now, just for the listeners and stuff, um, who were the Knights Templar, and how did they begin?
3: Sure. So, the Templars were formed in the early parts of the 1100s, the early 12th century. The Crusades had started perhaps 20 years earlier, and, and, uh, and parts of Jerusalem were retaken by the Christians, but uh, Christian pilgrims coming uh, from Europe to Jerusalem were oftentimes Uh, attacked or assaulted or robbed on their way to and from the Holy Land. And so the Templars uh, their their purported reason for organizing themselves was to protect the travelers back and forth uh, from, again, from Jerusalem to Israel uh, to uh, Jerusalem to Europe pardon me. Uh, In reality the nine French noblemen who founded the order spent most of the first decade in Jerusalem digging under King Solomon's Temple, the old Temple of Of Jerusalem, King Solomon's Temple that King Herod had had destroyed late in the first century, and they they dug, and many historians believe they found the remnants of the Knights Templar treasures that had been buried and secreted underneath that temple at the time uh, of the uprising, and uh, whatever they found, they came back to Europe 10 or 15 years later and almost instantly became one of the most powerful forces in Christendom. They controlled vast, uh loss of land, they, they ended up with huge amounts of money, whatever it was they found, they somehow leveraged it into amazing amounts of power in a very, very quick amount of time within one generation, uh, and it, to, it came to the point where they were as powerful or even more powerful than, than any king in Europe, and this went on for about 200 years um, during the entire span of the Crusades, and then eventually uh, Europe, the, the Christian co- uh, countries of Europe lost the Crusades and the Arabs and the Muslims took over Jerusalem again. And at that point, the Templars were still in existence, but the king of France realized that they were a very powerful force located right in Paris and a threat to him. And the pope felt similarly, perhaps because the Templars had uh, sort of a different version of Christianity they had developed. And the king and and the pope together decided, what better way to get rid of your enemies than to outlaw them? And, uh, so on Friday the 13th of October, which is the date for, and 1307, which is the genesis of unlucky Friday the 13th, uh, the edict was mm-hmm. signed and the Templars were rounded up and many of their leaders arrested and eventually, uh, uh, killed, uh, you know, burned alive or hung. Um, but all of this goes back to the early years where whatever they found in Jerusalem, whatever they found under King Solomon's temple, it must have been really important. It could have been religious relics. It could have been religious treasures, things like the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail. It could have been uh, secrets of ancient Christianity, uh, things that the Church didn't want known about the true teachings of early Christianity. Or it could have just been gold and, and other riches. We're not really sure what it was. But, again, whatever it is, they were able to leverage it into huge amounts of power uh, pretty quickly.
4: I think what makes the story of the Templars even more tragic is the way they were executed I mean they were charged with tons of bogus crimes you know such as desecration of you know holy relics and you know we saw them consorting with Lucifer at midnight and it almost like later witch hunts
3: very that's a, that's a very good analogy that that's exactly what it was like um but I think that there's probably a germ of truth to some of the accusations of heresy i, I do think that if, if we think about the time period the dark ages had just ended in Europe the templars their educated noblemen they go to Europe and it must have been eye opening to have such an advanced society we think of the middle east as being sort of backwards compared to Europe today but back then it was the other way around the middle east was far more advanced while Europe was in the dark ages so again these french noblemen they go to 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 the middle east to jerusalem and they uh, they start to learn about Um, modern uh, medicine and modern science, architecture, navigation, um, concepts such as uh, individual liberty and freedom. And they brought a lot of that back with them to Europe. And you, you can imagine that the Church wasn't thrilled with that kind of stuff. The Church had a good thing going with people being ignorant. They liked the idea that if you were sick, you didn't go to a doctor, you went to your priest, you gave a donation, and he prayed for you to make you well. That was better for the Church than what the Templars brought back, which is modern medicine. And so there was a, there was definitely um, a clash between the Templars, who, who had sort of had their eyes open when they were in Europe, the sophisticated, and the Church. And part of that also, I believe, was that one of the things that the Templars learned when they were in, in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, was that the version of Christianity that the Church was selling wasn't really the version of Christianity that was founded by Jesus, you know, 11 or 1200 years earlier. And, of course, that's, that's going to be, yeah, that's, that's going to cause accusations of heresy. So there may have been some, some germs of truth into the, the idea that the Templars were practicing uh, maybe an older, quote-unquote, pure, purer version of Christianity than what the Church wanted to promote, the whole patriarchal, the Church is always right. You need to pray through your priest, not directly to God, that kind of stuff.
4: Well, here, let's theorize it, because this is exciting. Um, maybe, here's the theory. What they found was either A, the Ark of the Covenant, or B, writings. You know, because remember, later on we found tons of writings in Qumran, the uh, Dead Sea Scroll. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. they found an earlier version that maybe, uh, let's just, go crazy here maybe it was written by jesus himself or you know mary magdalene i mean we, we don't know but maybe you're right they found something and i i want to believe so bad that it was the ark or perhaps you know the, the cut but maybe it was the writings that brought everything back
3: I happen to agree with you. I think I, it would be it would be much more exciting and, and bigger headlines if it was the Ark of the Covenant or, or the whole the Cup of the Holy Grail. But I think the probably the most likely reality is that they found ancient writings, as you just said, that were contradictory to what the Church was teaching. It may have been they found writings that indicated yes, Jesus and Mary Magdalene were indeed married and she did indeed have his children. Nope. No big deal at the time. Every rabbi, and don't forget Jesus was a rabbi, was expected, in fact, required to be married. So that wouldn't have been surprising at the time. Of course, the Church didn't want that coming out during the medieval times. It may have been, and one of the Dead Sea Scrolls talks about how uh, the prophecy at the time was that there would be two messiahs, a priestly messiah and a kingly messiah, Jesus being the king and John the Baptist being the priest, and that these two messiahs were supposed to share... Power. This is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, uh, the, John the Baptist was eventually beheaded by King Herod, and so he was unable to fulfill his role as the priestly Messiah. One of the things that Templars are always accused of was worshipping this head, Baphomet. It may have been that the head of John the Baptist was what the what the Templars were worshipping, because they were familiar with this prophecy, that it was supposed to be a dual... Uh, you know, two, two people sitting on the throne, the king and the priest, a duality. And so, the, yes, they worship Jesus, but they also worship John the Baptist, and that may have been why they were accused of kissing that skull, that head. It may have been that they were able to uncover the head of John the Baptist while they were in Jerusalem. And they, again, they knew of his prophecy. They knew of this idea of uh, uh, a priestly Messiah as well as a kingly one.
4: Wow. Wow. That You know, you are the first person that has ever been able to explain that, and it makes sense. I never thought of that, because who was was it that had John the Baptist beheaded? Well, Uh,
3: it was was King Herod, and the whole story was John the Baptist criticized King Herod's marriage. It was a second marriage. It was uh, an illegal marriage. He criticized it. Um, Herod's new wife. Her daughter is the fa- is the famous, well, um, uh, oh, no, I'm blocking, on the, uh, the Dance of the Seven Veils. Um, can you guys help me on that?
4: Um, oh, Lord. Um, Salome, Salome,
3: Salome, Salome, okay. And Salome danced for the king, and he was so impressed by her dance, her seductive dance, the Dance of the Seven Veils, that he said to her, I'll give you anything you want. And so she said to her mother, what do we want? And the mother said, we want John the Baptist's head, because he's criticized my marriage to the king.
4: On a silver platter. <laughs>
3: Exactly, on a silver platter. So Salome says, I want John the Baptist's head on a silver platter, and the king's like, "All right, I promise you whatever you want. And so he gets beheaded, and and that's the head. And and then they put the body out for the vultures to feast on, but the skull never was found. And so that's why many people think the Templars eventually ended up with the skull. But it it may have been this worship the Templars had of John the Baptist that caused them to butt heads with the Church. Later on. Yeah, part, in fact, uh, so the in, in, these, in these books I've written, the first book is called Cabal of the Western Night, and it focuses on a lot of the things, the artifacts, uh, the Templar artifacts in the room. But the second book is called The Thief on the Cross, and it focuses on the Templar worship of John the Baptist. So, readers who are interested in that particular angle uh, want to grab the Thief on the Cross. Um, we'll talk probably more about the artifacts and Cabal of the Western Night as we go along. But that I, I, I was fascinated, just as you were. Uh, I think it was Kevin who said that, just as you were fascinated by that whole idea of, you know, why did the Templars worship this head? What was going on there? And when we figure out the John the Baptist connection, it all sort of starts to make sense.
1: Mm. Well, uh, (laughs) now, uh, (laughs) I I, I I thought Kevin was on a roll. Yeah, I thought he was on...
4: I'm making some owl time here. <laughs> oh no, that's.
1: It. I, I I was interested in how you tied them to coming to the U.S. and w- what was the point of them coming here?
3: Right. So so we get it's 1307. The Templars are outlawed. They flee. Some of them end up in Portugal and reconstitute themselves as the Knights of Christ. Uh, many of them end up in Scotland because at the time Robert the Bruce, who ruled Scotland, had been uh, excommunicated from the church, and so they found safe haven in Scotland. In fact. There's some pretty strong evidence that they helped Robert the Bruce in his Battle of Bonnockburn against uh, the English. And again, this is back to Mel Gibson and Braveheart, that whole story. And that Robert the Bruce was so thankful to them that he, he gave them safe haven. Um, wherever they ended up, they obviously took their treasures with them. And again, with treasures, are we talking gold and, and, and silver? Definitely that. Are we talking religious artifacts? Probably that also. Are we talking secrets? Definitely that hidden knowledge, yes, all that stuff. Whatever they took, we know that when King Philip uh, raided their treasury in Paris in 1307 after arresting them, it was empty. We're pretty sure that everything uh, everything was carted to the coast and, 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 and put aboard ships in La Rochelle, which is on the western coast of France, and that they sailed north. Many accounts have them going to Scotland. Okay, so So we've got this Templar treasure in Scotland. They've got Safe Haven with Robert the Bruce, but they understand that that's, that's going to change. The politics of Europe, of course, are, are, are always changing, quicksand-like, and that at any point the English might come in and invade. in which case the Pope now has jurisdiction again. So the Templars say, we've got these treasures. We've got to hide them. Where are we going to put them? So now we've got, let's go back to the Sinclair family, Prince Henry Sinclair, and I, you know, I mentioned his connections with the Templars going backwards and the Freemasons going forward. What I did mention is that his mother was a Norse woman. So even though he was Scottish on his father's side, his mother was a Norse woman. And we can assume from that that she had access to the old Viking charts and maps and their route across the North Atlantic, island hopping across the North Atlantic, eventually down to Maritime Canada. Mm-hmm. I always thought that it was odd that we know that Leif Erikson came to North America in the year 1002 and that he left in the year, around the year 1009, but that nobody came back, again, until Christopher Columbus almost 500 years later. And Even as a kid, I thought that was strange because, let's face it, there are plenty of really good reasons to come back and forth once you knew the way. There are economic reasons. There was uh, timber. If you're in a maritime uh, society, the timber that you could have uh, harvested in, in Maine and Nova Scotia would have been incredibly important. If you know anything about Greenland, for example, there is no timber anymore, and many areas of Europe have, have, have been deforested at the time. There was trade, of course, with the Native Americans. There was fishing, of course, not to mention just the idea of all this open land. And so I think what really happened throughout the late Middle Age period is that explorers came back and forth across the North Atlantic many times. They just kept it secret, just like you keep your favorite fishing hole secret. Prince Henry Sinclair, we know he had a fleet of ships. We know that it was his job to bring the bishops back and forth to Greenland on behalf of the Vatican. So we know he knew he had to get at least that far to Greenland. And again, his mother was a Norse woman, had access probably to old Viking charts and maps. So it seems like not too big a stretch to have him continue on, much as the Viking forebears did, and continue down the coast, Labrador, New Finland, Nova Scotia. And then the legend is that he had 11 ships. He landed in Nova Scotia in 1398, and then nine of the ships turned around and went back after spending the winter with the Migamac tribe. And the two ships continued down the coast to explore further. And It's these two ships, I think, that ended up in Western Massachusetts, where Sir James Gunn, uh, one of Sinclair's lieutenants, died, and the effigy that we have carved in the rock ledge is, we think, of Gunn. Um, but again, as I said earlier, there's other artifacts, too. There's a, uh, uh, another artifact here in Westward. Uh, we call it the Boat Stone. It's a, it's a medieval ship carved into a stone, and it indicates the directions to where we think they spent their winter camping. It's about a mile away from the Western Night Carving. We've had that stone shipped yeah. out to a geologist in Minnesota by the name of Scott Walter, who many of your listeners might know from yes, the history of
4: absolutely. America
3: on Earth. Right. And Scott does some really interesting work with these stones. by He does weathering uh, studies, and he's able to determine how long these carved stones have been outside in a weathering environment based on the microscopic changes to the carved areas of the, of the, of the rock surface. And we sent this boat zone out to Minnesota a few years ago, and Scott's opinion was it had been sitting outside for about 600 years. So that's you know very consistent with the year 1400, 1398, 1399. Um, so we have we, we have artifacts here in Westford. Again, I mentioned earlier that it's important that we not just use archaeology when we look at these things. We can bring in the geologists. We can bring in the cartographers. We can bring in the linguistics, linguists. There's other areas, uh, other disciplines that can take a look at these artifacts in this history and weigh in on it. Um, and so up and down the coast of New England, we have, whether whether it's the Western artifacts, we have runestones, runic being a, a Scandinavian script. Uh, we have uh, a runestone in Maine that's dated at 1401 and 1402. And next to that, uh, floorboards from a sod house that were carbon dated to 1406, plus or minus five. So again... The, Native the, Americans the obviously didn't thing. speak runic. They weren not be carving rune stones. They didn't have uh, metal tools to do so. But we.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How
4: to get 30, 30, to get 30, better get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15
2: bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com/host.
3: We have some kind of Scandinavian presence right around 1400. We have a round stone tower in Newport, Rhode Island—the Newport Tower, a fascinating structure. Um, the mainstream historians claim it's, it's a colonial windmill. It makes no sense as a colonial windmill. It's Romanesque architecture. Uh, it's got. It's built on eight uh, pillars. Uh, we've done some carbon dating of the mortar that indicates 1430 is is a date plus or minus. Uh, there's a there's a there's a unique flue system in the fireplace that points directly to 14th century Scottish architecture. There's a lot of things about that tower which point right back not just to the to the Scots but to the Templars. The the, the format of that tower is very similar to other Templar architecture in Europe. So again, we've got eight or ten of these. Artifacts and sites around New England that all point to late 1300s and the Templars
4: and and the Vikings, as best evidenced by the Minnesota Viking.
3: Right. Well, that's so. The you know the Kensington Rune Stone, of course, is another one of those artifacts. It's a little earlier. It's about a generation earlier, 1362. But that that's another stone that Scott Walter has analyzed and concluded that the weathering on that stone is such that it can't be a hoax. And now we're left with, did the Native Americans carve uh, with metal tools speaking runic? It makes no sense. Or it is what it says it is, which is eight Goths and 22 Norwegians on a voyage of acquisition in 1362. Now, why would you come to the middle of the country in 1362? Well, it says a voyage of acquisition. And during medieval times, if you wanted to claim land, you claim the headwaters. If you think about where that stone sits in northern minnesota it's basically the continental divide and, and 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 if you know anything about history the louisiana purchase all that land in the central part of the country going all the way down the mississippi river essentially the headwaters of all of that is very close to the kensington runestone so if you if you want to make a claim to the central part of north america almost the third of the continent you could do that by by going to that spot so that makes sense you know it, it, when we're looking at this stuff we don't have the smoking guns. All we can do is, is build a case. This is where my legal training comes in handy. I'm trained to analyze and weigh evidence. And what, we're, what we find is we, we have these theories that perhaps they came you know, to, to the central part of the country. Does, does that make sense? Is that indeed the headwaters? Does that make sense? Is that indeed how you make land claims in medieval times? Yes, yes, yes. We keep finding that the evidence that comes in the door later supports the theory we had earlier, and that's one of the ways in the law that we test our conclusions. If the later evidence comes in and it's contradictory, we've got to start over again. But we're finding more and more artifacts and more and more history and more and more science that supports this general idea that in the latter part of the 14th century, there were these waves of Templar-related explorers coming not only to New England, but in this particular case, all the way to Minnesota.
4: Well, it makes, it makes strategic sense, too, and it's something that, you know, a, a group of military men would do. I, I want to claim the waterways because it's a choke point, and I can, I can keep you in, from bringing supplies through if I control the water. If you come on land, then I can spread you out and more easily defeat you and defend my zone.
3: You're 100% correct, but take it one step further. They, they, they didn't fight their way to Minnesota. Right? I mean, there's no way the Native Americans, the, the Iroquois, were to...
4: Were no, but they uh, explored the powerful. Great Lakes, and their ships right. were designed for that type of water.
3: Right, but they had to have formed some kind of alliance, right? There, there, there was, there was no, again, there's no way they fought their way to the interior. So now the question is, you know, we know later on that the, that the Native Americans were relatively friendly originally to the, to the Europeans when they came over. And Mm -hmm. I think that's because the first wave of Europeans, and I'm not talking about the Vikings, I'm talking about the Templar-related groups. I think the the reason the Native Americans were welcoming to the pilgrims is because they had had a peaceful history with the the Templar visitors a century or two earlier. The Templars were not here to settle and to take land. They were here to trade. They were here to hide some things. We, We talked about that already, but generally they were here, they came in peace. And they had... Uh, they treated the Native Americans respectfully, again, they knew about diplomacy. They had spent a lot of time in the middle east they weren 't uh, as close minded to different cultures as, as as we know the English later were, and so they were able to reach an understanding with the Native Americans and and, and were given safe passage and um, at our detriment, we ignore the Native American history side of this when we when we look at it so i 've made a point of of befriending and spending time with Native American tribal chiefs here in New England and asking them, you know, what does your oral history tell you about this? What what do you think of all this? And they've basically said, we are in complete agreement that this is what happened. Prince Henry Sinclair came with the Templars, built the Newport Tower. This is this is part of our oral history. So they've confirmed a lot of what we think had happened. Um, but uh, again, it all goes back to the idea that whoever came here had to have reached some kind of peaceful relationship, some kind of alliance with the Native American tribes.
4: So that that's exciting and sad all at the same time, because it's exciting that this validates your theory, but it's sad that the answer's been sitting in front of us this whole time and we ignore it because we ignore the people.
3: Right. Well you know the Native Americans they keep their they keep their traditions and their histories orally. That's always been their way. They the the, the, the the chief, or the medicine woman, or whoever would be in that particular tribe would pass on the, the tribe's history around the campfire to the next generation, and it would be memorized, or uh, memorized in the form of poetry, or in the form of song, and that's how the the, the the memories were kept. And of course, we, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a writer, so I love the written word, and as a lawyer, I can, I tend to be a little bit pedantic myself, but but I also recognize that just because we happen to think the written word is so important doesn't mean other cultures. Have to behave the same way, and for a long time we've looked at Native American oral history as being unreliable. You know, we all played telephone when we were kids, and that was mm-hmm. the example to show how you can't really believe what you hear. But that's not what the Native Americans did. They weren't little kids playing games. They tra- they kept this very, they, they took it very seriously, and they memorized it just as our prayers have been memorized and haven't really changed much in two thousand years or three thousand years, whatever it is, because they're important. You know, so too can the Native Americans keep their important traditions alive, and they're not going to be corrupted by this telephone game we talk about when we're seven years old.
4: Touche, because it's got to be written, it's got to be said, it's got to be given a certain way. Uh, now, if you don't mind, I'd like to rewind to something that you alluded to earlier. You said that you had linguists looking at this evidence, and it, I can't remember who. I want to say it was Scott Walter made a very key discovery with the hooked X and has associated that with the Templars.
3: Right. So the hooked X is a, is a runic character. And you know, we've got the runestone in, in Minnesota, in Kensington. We've got another runic inscription in um, near Popham Beach, Maine, which is up near Bath on the main coast. And a third one in Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island called the Narragansett runestone. All three of those runestones have a carved letter on them uh, the X is a common runic character, but these, all three of these stones have something called the hooked X. It's an X with an extra barb on the upper right side. That hooked X, that letter, does not exist on any runic inscription in Scandinavia or Europe. And Scott's uh, conclusion, I think he's 100% correct on this, is that this is sort of a modification made by the medieval travelers, almost like their calling card. Their, 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 their slang, if you would, that just says... You know, they, 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 they changed the X as a way to identify themselves and identify themselves to future travelers who might come over and see those carved areas, those carved, uh, those carved stones and carved artifacts. And Scott's belief is that, that that hooked X ties back to the Jesus and Mary Magdalene bloodline, which I'm not sure we want to get into that too much today, but the idea being that, um, again, it was a calling card. This is who we are, and this is why we came. And the fact that all three of the rune stones, you know, they're separated by thousands of miles and were carved at least hundreds of years apart, the fact that all of them share this one unique runic character where we don't find it anywhere in Europe or Scandinavia, to me, it's pretty compelling. That's you know, not, not the way mm-hmm. the world works normally unless there's something going on there.
4: Yeah, something that only another Templar would know, would be able to identify.
3: Right. It, it, it tells us that those three, those three artifacts were carved by the same... People or group of people, you know, people with a common knowledge base that it wasn't like mm-hmm. three different groups randomly added the same barb to the X letter. That makes no sense.
4: No, and just like just like masons, you know, there are certain indicators or certain things or certain signs or ways of standing, sitting, whatever that, that only we would be able to identify.
3: Exactly, exactly, and so so that's one of the examples of linguist, linguistic uh, discoveries. But let me give you another one because. Here in New England, we think when Prince Henry and his gang came, they came down the coast of uh, New England along the Atlantic, and they stopped in Newburyport and got on the Merrimack River, came up the Merrimack, disembarked, and ended up in Westford. Okay, that's how we think they came, and we've got a carving of, of the entire river system on a boulder, uh, we call it the Tingsborough the, the Mapstone, which we, we, again, we think was carved by, by Sinclair and his group. Um, But the Merrimack name is interesting because my Native American friends tell me that Merrimack is not a Native American word. And we think about the Templars, and of course, even though they butted heads with the Church, they were still very religious. They were a monastic group, and of course, they they worshipped Jesus. And we think about Scottish tradition of what the word Mac means, whether it's Mac in front or Mick in front. It means, obviously, son of. You guys know that, right? You know, McDonald means son of Donald. So the Merrimack Mary- <laughs> River is the son of Mary River. Son of Mary, I, of course, I, is Jesus.
4: So oh my the Lord, Merrimack I, River,
3: which I, the Native Americans say it's not a Native American name, well, where did that come from? I, I would postulate, because once the Europeans got here, it, there was, a big, it was already named the Merrimack. But the Native Americans said, we didn't name it that. It was, somebody else named it. So, so here we go. So the Merrimack, you know, again, linguistically, that's a clue. The son of Mary River.
4: See, the
1: Europeans come and they bring with them all their disease and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> now, think, um, now <clears throat> one thing I wanted to go back to, for me, the amateur here, I wanted to know, um, so you said how the Templars were outlawed. What exactly did they do to outlaw them? Like, what did they charge them with? What was? How could they just make them all arrested and go away? They had to have done something.
3: Well, again, they, the, the, the King of France um, it was, he was the motivated, motivating force behind this and eventually the Pope agreed to it um, they essentially drummed up charges of of, of, of heresy that, the, that the, the Templars were accused of um, spitting on the cross of uh, certain homosexual acts with, with each other of
4: um, desecrating not, the statutes uh, of Mary I'm
3: sorry what was that last thing?
4: Desecrating uh, holy artifacts, you know, like um, statues of Mary, you know. I hadn't Jesus. heard that
3: one, but that wouldn't surprise. But essentially, they, you know, drummed up charges similar to what happened during the Inquisition and similar to what happened during the witch trial. You know, essentially, back then, if you made an act, if you made an accusation and then you tortured somebody and and they they uh, they confessed, that was considered a legitimate confession. Well, of course, <laughs> under under uh, extreme amounts of torture, people were going to agree pretty much to anything. So they never really got any of the Templars to admit to any of this, They never really had any evidence. And in fact, uh, about 20 or 30 years ago, I might, I might be I might be wrong on the date. The Church finally came out and said, you know what? All those confessions, all those all those convictions, they were wrong. It turns out the Templars really did not do anything illegal. Okay, so you know, hundreds of years later, they're finally. Uh, vindicated, but essentially what it was, oh, and then probably the biggest reason for all this, I, I forgot to mention, is that the King of France owed the Templars vast amounts of money. And what better way to remove your debt than to kill your banker?
1: Yeah, so, that's a good idea.
3: By, by outlawing his banker he essentially, not only did he hope to recover their treasures, but he was able to wipe out a huge amount of debt. So that that was really the, the probably the primary motivation he had to, to turn on them. And again, the Church is willing to go along with it because the church didn't necessarily trust the Templars, and more importantly, it didn't need the Templars anymore because the Crusades had been over, we, and essentially they were, they'd been lost. And so it, the church didn't need this big army to go fight in the Middle East anymore, and they were the church was worried they were going to rabble-rouse here in Europe.
1: Yeah, yeah, have a big party. What do you think of the, uh, the, Knights, uh, the series about them that's been out?
3: I've watched some of it. it I mean, it's, it's interesting entertainment, and I think it's, it's good background. I still am surprised that not more uh, of these shows explore what we're talking about today, which is the idea that the Templars came over and used America as a safe haven, because there's a lot of compelling evidence to show that they did. And to me, you know, we've got this in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and we all learned that in second grade, but... Let's face it, we, we all got past the idea that the Easter Bunny was real. You know, we we lived through that, okay, that trauma. We can live through the trauma of somebody being here before Columbus.
4: The Easter I think Bunny's it's just a not question
3: real? Time. Ah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to all little, little listeners out there. Uh, I, think, I, think can, <laughs> I think we can... I think we can... It might take a generation, because it, it takes a while to, to, to redirect the ocean liner. I get that, but I think... Um, this this story, to me, is far more interesting and far more compelling than than Columbus, who sort of, you know, uh, just sort of stumbled his way here thinking he was going to Asia and ended up in, in, in Santa Domingo instead. That's not a very interesting story. And then once he, get, once he got here, of course, he was, you know, a complete bastard to the Native Americans. Uh, this is a better story. This is a more noble story. These are people who came for a, they came for a reason. They treated the Native Americans correctly. Um, there's treasure, which everyone loves. There's intrigue. There's secrecy. I mean, this is a better story. Not to mention the fact I think it's true.
1: Yeah. What was the selection process to get to become a Templar? Like, how could you, How would you become one?
3: Usually, well, it was men, middle-aged men, which, you know, back then, mid-thirties men who had had a family, <laughs> because one of the requirements was was celibacy. So you, you you didn't want to join when you were, you know, you didn't want to join when you were eighteen. So typically, it was men who had had a family, who wanted their souls to be saved, and, and honestly, I think who wanted a little midlife adventure. Essentially, it was it was an excuse to go off to Europe and you know with, with your buddies and go and go kill some heathens and have your soul saved and come back and be a hero.
1: Get away from the world.
3: And, yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know go probably probably do some you know, some whoring along the way. Yeah. But essentially, that, that's a lot of what it was. It was, it was a, you know, a, a glorified golf weekend with the boys.
0: Wow.
4: But what, I think, if I can amend Al's question, though, I mean, that that would be for any man of, of that day. You know, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go d- deliver Jerusalem, you know, from these evil people. Okay, I understand that, but what separated the Templars from any other knight other so, than so the, the tem- Catholics? Yeah, so, that, so the,
3: the Templars became... Because they were they were generally the noble the, the noblemen, so it, it, it was traditional in Europe that like the, the third son would join the priesthood and whatever. This is different. These are guys who were noblemen who had vast amounts of wealth, who had other careers, whether it was just being you know a lord or whatever, but who, who joined later in life. And so this was almost like joining the country club in, in some ways. I don't want I don't want to uh, minimize it that much. That's not fair, but. These were not guys who had the calling to be in the priesthood. These were guys who were military. This was a military order, unlike other monastic orders. These were fighting knights. And so you had to have a certain amount of money even to afford a horse and a, and a, and a page and, and, and footmen and all that kind of stuff. So you had to have a lot of money to do this. But the church essentially saw it as a, as a really good way to not pay for the army themselves but to have this army and, of course, the, the promise was you, we're gonna we're gonna say, you can save your soul we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna excuse you for whatever sins you might commit uh, because it's for the greater good. You're fighting you know the gods war over in, in Europe, Not in the Middle East. Pardon me.
1: Yeah. Wow. So so it wasn't that they were really talented, like really good fighters or anything like that. It was just kind well they of...
3: were they again they were many of them you know many knights at that time were trained in jousting training trained in sword fighting so yes they they were they were trained uh, uh trained knights they, they were they were they were skilled that that's what you did if you were a nobleman when you were a teenage boy you trained to be a to be a fighter on, on horseback by sword jousting whatnot so yeah when they went over there they were a vicious and and feared fighting force because they were so well trained and and they, they had great success on the battlefield no doubt about that
1: wow okay so that's interesting um now, so you said that they they had to remain celibate. So, what happened to their their wives and kids at the time? They just left them, and they could never go back.
3: They, the, the, so the 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 commitment was. I forget if it was a two year commitment. It was again similar to today. You would join the army for a two year stint or a three year stint yeah. or whatever. And an enlistment. Enlistment was, and you would go over and you would fight for two years, and you would come back, and maybe maybe enlist a couple years later, or maybe you wouldn't. You know, every every situation was different, but. Whenever there were these wars in Europe, if if you happened to be, you know, in France and and it was time to go invade England, you you were away for a couple of years probably anyway, you know, no matter where you were fighting, these wars happened. Uh, It it took took a long time, obviously. Transportation wasn't what it is today. Mm
4: -hmm. Now, this may be a, a sidebar conversation, but I just want to get this in there, get your take on it. I can't remember if it was Pope Pius or Pope Urban. They began taking criminals out of their jail system and saying, "Listen, if you go fight, you know, against the Muslims, we'll forgive all your sins and and it's your slate is clean."
3: Right now, these guys were different. These guys were foot soldiers, so they were up on the front lines. They were, you know, or, or they they were, they were they were the laborers or whatever. They were at the very bottom of the pyramid. Whereas the Templars, who, who were, were were noblemen and had their own horses and footmen and pages, they were at the top of the pyramids. But, yeah, there was a lot of that, um, you know, we'll, we'll forgive your sins no matter what they are if you go fight this fight.
4: Wow. Wow. So there was, there was hope for everyone. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>
1: oh. <laughs> wow. Okay. So now what? Now on the new book, what are you pursuing? What's kind of your, your aim and focus in the new book that you're just putting out?
3: Right. So the, the book that's coming out, this will be the eighth in that series, and I call it my Templars in America series. And essentially what it does is it, for the most part, looks at these sites and these artifacts. And it's not just New England, it turns out. We've got sites and artifacts in the Catskills. We've got some stuff out in uh, the uh, southwest Arizona and New Mexico. Um, it turns out these guys were were, were, you know, were, were getting around for, for the most part. And there may have been people here even before the Templars, the Templars, the Irish, the Celts, might have been over here in the 6th century. Brendan the Navigator is a, a legend, and maybe if you guys want to talk about that, I can come back on another time and talk about the Irish uh, coming to America even earlier than the Templars. But this, la- this latest book is called The Swagger Sword, and it essentially it's based on uh, artifacts found in, in, in the Catskills that were left, we think, by the Templars even before Prince Henry, sometime in the late 12th century. There's some journals that indicate the Templars had come across, um, uh, and ended up uh, in the Catskill Mountains and, uh, and left these artifacts. And um, they have some interesting connections back to the Vatican, and um, you guys have probably spoken about the Vatican banking scandal from the early 1980s. Oh,
1: and, yeah, yeah, and, Gerald. And, yeah,
3: so, <laughs> so the, a guy by the name of Archbishop Marcinkus, who was sort of central to that banking scandal, it turns out was also looking in the Catskills for these same artifacts. Uh, which I think is a fascinating tie-in. My feeling has always been a high-ranking Vatican official is not going to go looking for Templar artifacts in America unless he's found something in the Vatican archives to indicate there really are Templar artifacts in America. He's not going to waste his time otherwise. I mean, very few people have access to the temple, to the Vatican archives and library. He must have found something that made it worth his while to spend his, his later years uh, traipsing around in, in, in the mountains of new york trying to find t- templar treasures to me that's some of the most compelling evidence we have that this story really is true yeah. um but I, my my my, le- my latest novel called the swagger sword uh ties in Marcinkus and this templar treasure and the vatican banking scandal um it turns out that a lot of these guys involved uh in the vatican banking scandal were all given something called swagger sticks or swagger swords uh they're sort of like <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? They're, they're, they're hidden swords that military guys used to use back in World War One, and yeah. carved on the blade, carved on the blades of these swords, were, were clues and maps that led to this treasure in the Catskills. This is that part, that part of the story is true, and uh, we found a couple of these swords, but they were given to the different leading members of this uh, this rogue Masonic lodge called uh, P2 Propaganda Douay. And it was, again, a rogue group of Freemasons who had stumbled upon this stuff after World War II. And it's some really good stuff. St- you know, Truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. But I like to grab some of this real history and weave it into some modern-day intrigue and then, of course, expose a lot of the real history as well.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's great. That's very important. We need to have more, um, more history, uh, people getting more involved. I think that's great.
3: Uh, yeah, and I, and I, look, I, I when I read, I love a good roller coaster ride where I learn something at the same time. To me, yeah. like historical fiction, that's the best. So that's the kind of stuff I write. Like, it, hopefully, it's going to be a thriller. Hopefully, you're going to enjoy the, the twists and the turns. But along the way, you're going to be like, wow, I didn't know about that history. I didn't. That's that's interesting history. So it's one of those things that's sort of a guilty pleasure. You know, you can you can you can be entertained and be educated at the same time.
1: That's the best way. Now, uh, yes, I, I wish I wrote like that. Now. <laughs> Here. Um, so how's your, um, uh, how do people get a hold of you, and what's your website?
3: So davidbrodybooks.com. All the books are up there, and, and uh, there's a link. You can get a hold of me that way as well. And, and as you can probably tell from the passion which we've had this conversation, I will talk about this stuff to anybody, anytime, for as long as they want. You know, <laughs> I, I love this stuff. <laughs> so I'm always happy to chat. People want to reach out to me. That's great. Uh, the books are on Amazon and on Kindle, the easiest way to find them. Uh, but, again, Brody, B-R-O-D-Y, com. And, uh, and I try to make them inexpensive. The Kindle version is like four bucks and change. So if you want to read this stuff, you know, I don't, I don't want people to have to spend a lot of money. I, I, I want people to to be exposed to this. I, I want people to be passionate about it like I am. And so, uh, you know, go check it out. Cabal of the, first, uh, Cabal of the Western Night is the first one in the series.
1: Fantastic. Now, we're going to have everything linked up on our website as well and the station. Great. Thank you. And <laughs> thank you. you as well. So um, thank you for talking to us about all this. This is great. Um,
4: David,
3: it's been great. I really enjoyed you guys. Thank you.
4: David, it was a founding.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. The mission
0: has been completed. The end.
4: By George, he's got it. It is the end.
0: I'll see you.
4: If you're lying to me, I'll be back.
0: This has been a production of Something Weird Media. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.com